Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you for all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you, Christy, for reading. And and let me pray for us as we shift into the word here and get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we just ask, we come as those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn over the brokenness in our lives and the world, and those who uh, humbly come and ask. And Father, I just ask that on behalf of each person in this room, that you would meet us where we are today, that you would take the truth of your word, and that you would bring intersections of it by your Holy Spirit into each of our lives and apply it in exactly the spot where we need to be ministered to today. Father, we come trusting you to do more than we can do. Um, Father, we Pray it in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Uh, well, this morning I wanted to start off and I had a question for you. I got a little giveaway this morning. I want to know, anyone miss breakfast? Anyone just a little bit hungry or maybe you just have a little sweet tooth? I've actually got some donuts here and I thought it might, you know, I mean, we're family and I know you like, you got to act like you don't like donuts, but I know how it is. Anyone, anyone of you just want some donuts? I've actually got some sausage rolls too. Anyone want something a little more substantial? Prefer to have a sausage roll? You use sausage? All right, that's who I figured. Who wants a donut? Catherine, you want a donut? Who else wants some donuts? I know we got some students in here. There you go, sweet girl. Who else wants some donuts? Oh, good catch. All right, someone in the back wants some. Come on up and grab these. Who's that back there? I can't quite see through the lights. One of you come up, or Chase, why don't you take these living lady in the back row there? All right. We do this every week. You know, maybe a church growth strategy. Uh, we could try that. Maybe it's something we need to do. Uh, Paul had this idea a while back, but here's the thing. Um, I want to talk tonight about what it is to be hungry. That great 
uh, rock star, sage, philosopher, theologian, Bruce Springsteen once said, everyone has a hungry heart. And there's a reality that as hungry as our bellies are, that we have deeper hungers and things that we want uh, inside us as well. And so we're gonna talk some about this today is this question is just where do you seek to find fulfillment for your, the hunger and thirst of your soul? Where are you trying to fill up the, the, the hole that is in you that God has taught us where we can flourish and how we can fulfill that, but we try to stuff it in all kinds of other ways. And we run in all kinds of different directions for that. And the question is gonna be really, where do we seek to consume, to nourish, to feast in our hearts? And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is trying to tell us that success and sexual satisfaction and material gain and revenge and monetary abundance are not able to fill the deepest needs of our lives. And so in all those areas, Jesus is gonna teach in the Sermon on the Mount about where it is and how it is that we need to find a deeper fulfillment. And so as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, we're really talking about this thing that in the church world we call discipleship, which means to be a disciple is to be a follower or a learner of Jesus. And we're disciples of him because we wanna learn from him how it is that we live. And he wrote the Sermon on the Mount to say, this is the way of human flourishing in the world. This is how you flourish, is to live into the way in which my kingdom works and the way in which the world that I've created works. And so as we continue to study the Beatitudes, these statements are inviting us to explore new ways of living, ways that are gonna actually lead to, ful to fulfillment and satisfaction. So there's a progression. As you think about these Beatitudes, these statements, oftentimes we think about these, and we said this last week, that we tend to think about these as isolated things, and you look at them and you're like, blessed are those who mourn, and you're like, oh good, the sad people will be happy someday. Or blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And you go, oh good, poor people get to have a lot someday. And we tend to think that this is really not the way the Beatitudes are meant to roll out. Although those things are in some sense true, these are really more characteristics of individuals. And we're supposed to have all of these, that these describe the ideals and the virtues of the Christian life. And Jesus is inviting us to learn to live into the way in which he's created the world, and the way in which he's going to build his kingdom, and the way in which we're gonna all celebrate and enjoy him one day fully and right now we're invited into that kind of a life. And so as you think about the progression, the, the three we looked at last week, we took the first three and we said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who meek. And in some sense, the, those three go together as kind of a triad and it's, it's the emptying of self. And so in some ways, those kind of had a negative orientation. They're kind of a laying down of who I am or an emptying out of myself and, and coming empty-handed to Christ. And so there's kind of this, this sense in which they all went in one direction. And then here in, in the fourth one, it begins to pivot and it's gonna shift and it's gonna start filling us up. And so instead of kind of breaking us down, it's gonna start building us up and saying, not only do you need to unload yourself, you need to build a new self built on the person of Jesus. And so he's gonna start building into us and telling us how it is that we need to live. You think about um, any of you kind of workout, workout guys, a lot of times what you're doing when you're lifting is you're actually overdoing something in order to break down muscle so that it actually grows back stronger. And there's a little bit of a sense of, that that's what Jesus is doing here in the progression of, of kind of emptying you of the wrong attitudes that are built upon self so that then you can rebuild based on healthy attitudes that are meant to cause you to flourish because in, in the person of Jesus. So let's jump in and look at verse six, the very first one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. 
Now, what is, what is righteousness? Righteousness um, is not general niceness or good morality or being a good citizen. Uh, it's something that goes beyond that. It's not just decent moral kind of respectability, which is oftentimes the way we might think about it. Uh, let's be honest, none of us want to be righteous because you're like, dude, I'm not a Pharisee. Like, I don't, don't put that label on me. Or, or we got to say it with a little bit of attitude, like, yeah, you're righteous, man. Or like, we've got to somehow, like, we don't, we're not sure we want this label on us. So we kind of squirm around it. But really what it's talking about is God putting right, or one, one definition or understanding of righteousness, and we're gonna look at kind of two here, is God setting right what's wrong in the world. All the things that are, that are wrong, this is a deliverance or a salvation or a restoration of good, of that which is right, and taking that which is wrong and making it right. And so uh, God redoing or, or repairing that which is broken. And he's saying that we're to hunger and thirst for this kind of righteousness, which means we're to hunger and thirst for God's kingdom. We're to hunger and thirst for God's ways. We're to hunger and thirst for God's way of living and being in the world. And so that's one way is that we're, we're just, we're dissatisfied with the, with the fact that in the world's not right. Any of you feel that this year? Yeah, it's not hard this year, is it? This year's really easy to look around and go, man, this place is messed up and I want it to be better. We've got kind of a holy discontent with the brokenness in our world. But it also goes a little beyond that and goes to the reality that we need to have kind of a holy discontent of the brokenness in our own hearts and in our own lives. It's not just what's wrong out there, it's what's wrong in here. And so there's a sense of dissatisfaction with my own divided sinful heart. And most often in Matthew, it has this kind of approach of more this personal righteousness and your personal character and the way in which um, that we're called to live. Now, friends, what he's saying is it's not just enough to confess your sin. You have to actually then hunger for righteousness. See, when you think about it being poor in spirit and mourning over your sin and being meek and humble, that's all good and it's necessary. You have to empty yourself, of, empty yourself and say, man, my ways led me to, a poor, to an impoverished space. That's good, but it's not enough. You actually have to go beyond saying, I don't have enough to saying, I actually want the good stuff. I actually want righteousness. I actually want to begin to look more like Jesus. And that's, that's a shift that is taking place in this beatitude that, that we're, we're, we're called to lay down self, but then we're also called to take on a new self or to hunger and thirst for that new kind of life that we have in Jesus. It's not just enough to turn away from sin. We have to turn toward something good. And God wants to rebuild us in a, in a healthier direction. And friends, here's what I think we see in our world. We've exchanged hungering and thirsting for personal freedom, for affirmation of me and who I am, in my own desires, and in feelings of happiness that are momentary rather than hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And what Jesus says is those things are gonna leave you empty, but righteousness will actually satisfy you. Hunger and thirst for the righteousness for that will lead to satisfaction. It's interesting, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, um, that it's, we have to recognize, or I've actually got a slide here, just so the desire for righteousness is a desire to be right with God, a desire to get rid of sin because sin is that which comes between us and God, keeps us from gaining knowledge of God and all that is possible to us and for us with God and from God. See, we, we wanna do away with sin, not just so we feel better about ourselves, but because it actually gets us to God because it actually satisfies, it actually builds something in us and makes us, uh, makes us something new. It's a recognition that the way in which I've lived has been blind to the desires that are true and good and lasting and substantial. 
that will help me to actually find fulfillment. First John 1 says this way, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, that's the path of righteousness. That ultimately it's about Jesus. It's about us walking with him. But there's a reality that when we, when we choose sin over the Lord, that it causes a separation. It causes a distancing in our relationship with the Lord. And so we, become, we begin to drift away from him because we're gonna run in one direction or the other. We're either gonna run after him or we're gonna run after things that distract us from him. And so we become distracted in different directions. So here's the reality for me. I'm seeking the righteousness, the, uh, seeking righteousness is not just a product of ourselves. It's gonna have to be something bigger than that. And the reality for us is that most of us don't feel like we could, be, we could ever be righteous. See, when I talk to most people, this sounds like a pie in the sky. And really, a lot of you are listening to the sermon right now. And there's a part of you that's saying, well, this must be for someone else. This must be for the spiritual elites in the room. This must be for a handful full of people, but I probably don't qualify for this. And what you're really saying is, Jeff, you don't, you don't know the places I've been. You don't know the stuff I've done. You don't know where I've been this last week. You don't know the desires that are in my heart and the shame that I feel over some of the things that I've experienced in my own life. Surely I can't be one of those that can be righteous. Here's the thing, friends. The gospel says that though you can identify with your past sins and you can be related to the desires and the things that are in you, you're not defined by them. That ultimately those things are not the things that define you, that we can recognize our past, that we can recognize the places we've been, that it's important to recognize the desires that are in us, we're not defined by them. Colossians 3 says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Do you understand the power of that verse? Your old man died. You're now hidden. You're covered. You're protected. You're enveloped. You're in Christ. The old man is gone. The new man has come. You become a new creation and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That means when we don't flourish, it's because we're holding on to our old life and our old desires. And in order to flourish, what we need to do is we need to, to trust the new life that we have in Christ. We need to trust the life that he's building in us. And why do you think Jesus uses the verbs here, hunger and thirst? Let me ask you this. Do you hunger and thirst for something you already have? Or do you hunger and thirst because you need something? You want something. See, you hunger and thirst for things that you're not in possession of. You hunger and thirst for something you need someone to give you so that you can satisfy yourself. And so, friends, your prerequisite to fulfilling this beatitude is that you don't have what you need in and of yourself and you're hungry and thirsty for something, someone else to provide it for you. So when you say, I don't think I can be righteous because I don't have everything together, you're actually proving Jesus' point. He's like, that's what I told you. You don't have it together, you should hunger and thirst for something that someone else can give you. And you need God's help to do this. Now, here's the reality for, uh, as we think about what it is we need to do. Uh, John Darby says this, he says, when the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed upon the husk. When he was starving, he turned to his father. And how hungry are you? 
Are you ready to run to someone that can actually provide something for you? Or are you going to keep running or wallowing around like the pigs, trying to fill yourself with stuff that doesn't really satisfy? John 6.35 said, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As I think about this, how aware are you of the life of God in your own soul? Do you, do you sense the spirit at work in you to change you, to bear fruit in you? Do you sense the conviction that God gives when you sometimes stray off the path? Do you feel his absence when you've given yourself to sin? Do you long to know him more, to be connected to him? See, if you're a Christian, the answer should be yes. And if you're not experiencing any of those things, what it's telling us is that you're not very hungry or thirsty for righteousness. And you need, to, you need to, to learn to stoke that, that hunger and that thirst. See, hungry and thirsty people are always trying to find a buffet somewhere, right? Hungry, thirsty people try to put themselves in the place where food can be found. And that's what we need to do. And that's part of the answer for us is we, we need to be together. Uh, one of the dangers, I think, of this COVID season is that the, it, it just became easy not to get together as, as a church family. It became easy for people to like drift out and go, well, I don't want to watch. Or, well, the streaming didn't work very well. Or maybe I'll just take a day off or a Sunday off and that becomes two or three. And then you just, you stop coming back to the people of God. The reality for you and for me is we need to be in the place where food is. And so families eat together and they share a family meal. And that's what the church gathering is. And we need to be a place where you run to God's word and you're hungry for righteousness. So you're getting in the word each day and Monday and Tuesday. You're, you're diving in the word and you're developing a rhythm of prayer because you want to be with the Lord and you want to seek righteousness. And you want to get in a community and a small group where you've got friends and family that encourage you to pursue righteousness together. And in all those things, uh, the, there's, a, there's an invitation for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness together. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Uh, let's look at verse seven. Uh, you look at the next beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, the kind of people who are blessed, the kind of people who are flourishing, the kind of people who are to be congratulated in another translation are people that are merciful. That's oftentimes not the way we, we would tend to think about this, but what Jesus is preaching, and he's saying that Christian men and Christian women who are merciful are those that are truly flourishing in the way of Jesus. He puts the weight on who we are and being like him. Now, how do we define mercy? Mercy is compassion in action. Mercy is, uh, if you think about it, mercy is different from grace. Grace oftentimes has to do for sin and with offenses. And so grace is, uh, is pardon for sin or pardon for offenses. It's forgiveness for those things. Mercy is different. Mercy is compassion for the broken places, for those who have needs, for those who need, uh, who need help. And so as you think about mercy is a fo focus, especially on people who are in misery or struggling or, um, or hungry. Uh, mercy heals, it cleanses, it brings about good and other people's hurt. It meets them in, the place of, in their place of pain or suffering. And so mercy flows out of us in action towards trying to help those who are in need. And that's what Jesus says is a life of flourishing. Let me tell you what merciful does not mean. It doesn't mean that you're just easygoing or chill. 
mercy doesn't mean that you're just a feeler and you know a commercial comes on and it's a little bit sappy and you get a tear and a lump in your throat and that, that's not necessarily what now that doesn't mean you're not merciful but it doesn't really mean you're merciful um, it just means you're emotional and that can you have all kinds of reasons that could cause that it doesn't mean that we're open-minded or affirming of sin in some political correctness fashion that just says i'm gonna call everything good that's not really what merciful or the biblical compassion looks like in our world and particularly, this is interesting. Uh, it's fascinating to me that this, this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, follows right after blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, we, times, we sometimes in our world, we think of those two as enemies. Well, righteousness and mercy are, are opposites. But biblically, they go together. Jesus says, in fact, when you have one, it's gonna lead to the other. That we're to have both of these things together. And so however we define mercy, here's the way you have to realize is it has to be something that God is also. God himself is merciful. And so if we're gonna define mercy, it can't be a definition that doesn't look like God. Mercy and truth go together with God. They're not contradictory. God is merciful and God is holy. God is compassionate and God is just. And so those things go together in the Lord. And here, um, what, if we're gonna follow after Jesus, we're gonna look like Jesus. And the, the citizens of his kingdom, he says, are merciful people. Which means um, that when they look out in the world and they see hurting, and there's something in them that just wells up and that feels sorrow and that wants to help those that are in the world, those that are in the church, those that are in their family. But mercy is what naturally overflows out of them. You it says that they shall receive mercy. Somehow, it's not that if we're merciful, we'll get mercy. It's not, a, it's not a transactional thing. But the kind of people who are merciful are the kind of people who also have experienced mercy. And when we receive mercy from the Lord, we're more likely to give mercy. In fact, John Stott says this, going back to one of the earlier Beatitudes that blessed are the meek. He says, to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. To be merciful is to have compassion on others for they are sinners too. You see how the, the Beatitudes all go together? See, if I recognize that I'm poor in spirit and I have to mourn my sin and I'm meek and humble because I know I have sin in my own life, what's gonna naturally then flow out of me when I desire righteousness is I'm gonna have compassion and mercy for other sinners because I know how much I need it as well. And so when you're in tune with your own need for mercy, it's easier for you to give away mercy to those that are around you. And I think that's, the, that's what Jesus is pointing at here. Friends, can I ask you, are you merciful? When you look in the mirror, is it the face of mercy that you see? Are you hard-nosed and demanding of others? Are you quick to roll your eyes in cynicism? Are you ready to help the struggling sinner? Do you have compassion in action to serve those around you? The, I think the best picture of this is the, the Good Samaritan. After the, the religious all walked around him and avoided him, he looked and he had compassion and he crossed the road and he got in the presence of the one who was hurting. And he got down with him and he began to care for him. He began to minister to him and he lifted him up and he took him to a place of rest and he, out of his own, out of his own abundance, provided and cared for the one who is hurting. That's what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are the merciful. Let's look at the next one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And one man said, this is one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the Bible. And do you recognize you can see God? I mean, 
is it, can there be a more profound statement in terms of our, our theology and our understanding of the world that we get to see God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's also a great challenge. Uh, we're going to see this a little bit later. When you work your way through the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things Jesus is going to say is, we have to have a greater righteousness than the righteousness of the Pharisees. Why? Because they're like whitewashed tombs. They clean everything up on the outside, but there's death on the inside. There's nothing good really going on. They just have had a cultural external pressure make them conform to a moral image, but they don't really have any life or any God stuff going on in them. He says, your righteousness better be, better be more than that. And Jesus is going to lead us to that as we get a little further down the road. But that's why it's interesting here where he says, blessed are the pure in heart. The gospel of Jesus is all about the heart. You notice he doesn't say, blessed are the intellectual. Blessed are the Bible knowledge experts. Blessed are the doctrinal defenders. Blessed are the theological hair splitters. Like he, didn't, he didn't say any of those things, right? It's blessed are the pure in heart. Here's the thing. I'm a teacher, I love the Bible. I've got crazy amounts of theology books and I dive into this. I've got a degree in it. Like I love theology, I love beliefs, I love doctrine. But unless our doctrine goes beyond mere knowledge to do something to change our hearts and our attitudes and who we are, it's not real doctrine. And it's falling short. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the Bible knowledge people. He also doesn't say, blessed are the disciplined, blessed are the rule followers, blessed are the moral enforcers. Because the gospel goes beyond behavior modification and making us look like nice people. That's not enough. And if our desire to, uh, to be righteous and to be good doesn't go beyond simply this external religious cultural pressure or societal pressure to fit into the norm, then we've really fallen short. Christianity is not primarily about conduct and behavior. It starts with the heart. We must be in Christ before we can try to act like Christ. And one is primary over the other. And notice he also doesn't say, blessed are those with spiritual experiences or blessed are those with, that are emotionally moved. See, it's not enough just to have a spiritual experience. Those things can be put on like a coat and cast off. It's about the heart. The gospel of Jesus always goes to the heart. And that's what has to change. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, not merely on the surface intellectualism or moralism or emotionalism, but those whose lives are truly being changed. Your heart, friends, is the deepest space in your being. What he's saying in the, the place that's most really you, does it really belong to Jesus? Is it, is it really focused on him? He'll later say, seek first the kingdom of seek first kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he'll go on to say, you can't, have, you can't love both God and mammon. And he's saying is, you, you can't have a divided heart. Seek first, you have to have a, a singular focused heart on God. And this is really our problem, isn't it? That our hearts just aren't that good. That what comes out of us is just kind of messy. And any of you that have grown up in a family, you know what I'm talking about? Any of you that go to work know what I'm talking about? Any of you that have ever gone to school or been on a sports team, you know exactly what I'm talking about? Like our hearts just make messes all everywhere we go. Jesus uh, said this, in fact, in Matthew 5, 19, he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, uh, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Take any problem of, uh, that you see in life and its source is in the human heart. 
And then when you put multiple broken hearts together, it just begins to multiply like a pinball machine. It's just, we're bouncing off one another and just creating more messes everywhere we go. And so as you think about this, the whole life, what he's saying is it needs to be changed inside, outside, public, private, all of it's open to God. It's unmixed, undivided, without anything distracting us or distracting us from God's way. To have a pure heart is to have a heart that is completely his. To be singularly focused on him and not divided amongst all these other things. Here's the reality for, for you and for me. When we think about our own lives, how many of you, when you go to lunch after church and you got a family of three or four people, how many of you all agree on exactly where you need to go? I mean, if your family is anything like mine, what you do is you, you get in the car and you go and someone goes, I want tacos and someone goes burgers and someone goes, I just want to go home and play video games. The other one's like, I need healthy. And so you just have all these differences of opinions. And for us, when we have a divided heart, that's the kind of thing that's happening is you're going, man, part of me feels like it wants the Lord, but then other part of me wants this sexual thing and part of me wants money and part of me wants comfort and our hearts are divided and they're just arguing and fighting over which direction to go. And what Jesus is calling us to, and he says, blessed are the pure in heart. is of a heart that is solely his, that's loyal and constantly giving to him. It means it's undivided without any hypocrisy or mixing. Um, friends, there's a, there's a fact that one part of me wants to worship the Lord and there's another part of me that, that really doesn't a lot of the time. And that part calls and invites me to, go, to run in other directions. And that's the nature of the spiritual life that we all live. None of us escape that battle and that tug of war. And the other aspect of being pure in heart means purity, cleanness, without defilement, without stain or blemish. And what I, what I know about each of us is that none of us feel very pure. It feels prudish and self-righteous even to say it. But it's important to understand this is a virtue that Jesus says leads to our flourishing. It leads to our goodness. And he invites us into this. I love the way Glenn Stason describes this in the Beatitudes. He says, the Beatitudes are virtues of participation in grace-based deliverance. And what, if, what would it look like if that, if, if, what would your life look like if you began to think about the pursuit of righteousness like this? That it's a grace-based deliverance program. That he's delivering you from sin, delivering you from the things that distract you from the Lord, delivering you from the things that, that put you in bondage, delivering for the, you from the things that distract you from the place that you're going to find true flourishing. And based on his grace, there's this invitation to cultivate a virtue that's going to lead you in a better direction, deliver you from stuff that will lead you in a wrong direction. And that's, that's, what the life, that's the life that we're invited into. And friends, that's the life we're headed to. When Jesus returns and when all things are made new and we're in the new heavens and new earth and we're flourishing uh, with him, we're gonna be in a world where, the pure in, where we're all pure in heart. And so we begin to practice that even now as we head in that direction. Look at verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, Let's be honest, some of, some of you love this idea. You're like, oh, sweet, I hate conflict. Like, I'm all in on peacemaking. Like, I, I, can, I can be one of those people. And, uh, but this is not just easygoing, kind of peace at any, Christ, any price kind of people. Uh, peacemaking is not appeasement. Uh, it has to go beyond that. Uh, this is not just people that say God is love, grace is the way, love is love, compassion is always the answer, and we need to run in that direction. We have to remember, this follows after, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are those who are pure in heart. 
Blessed are those whose hearts are completely God's and want God's way and want to be in the path of God's flourishing in his kingdom and are hungry and thirsty after his kingdom. And so with that, as that is a prerequisite, then we're also coming in and saying, and I want to bring, I want to be a peacemaker. But those things have to go together. And so as you look at the Beatitudes, they all flow together. This isn't one of those that just says, peace, peace, when there is not really peace. It's peacemakers, not peace fakers, right? And so when you think about this, it's flowing out of an undivided heart that we can, is the only way that we can truly bring peace. Do you see why that is? I mean, what did Jesus said comes out of our hearts, our fallen, our old man heart? And it's all kinds of junk, right? So if, 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 if all that junk's coming out of our heart, how, we're not gonna be able to bring peace to others. So it's in receiving a new heart and finding that God is rebuilding your heart and making it new, that then you can go to that place of trying to help others and bring peace to a situation. So how do we be peacemakers? First, this is profound. Don't make things worse. Like if you've already blown it, just stop. Be the first to say, I'm sorry. I didn't do this well. Can we start over? Will you forgive me? Obviously, a person who's quarrelsome, angry, divisive, grumbling, online ranting is never going to be a peacemaker. Philippians 2, really difficult verse to understand. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do you know that's a whole verse in your Bible? It's not Old Testament, that's New Testament. Like it's right there. You don't need a PhD. You want me to tell you what the Greek means for that? It means what it says. Stop it, is what it means. All that, all that stuff. Like if I were gonna tweet this right now, the emoji would be like the guy with his hand in his face going, hmm, as I think about Christianity over the last year. Man, maybe you go full like, you know, the big statue thinker like, huh, that's odd. In, in the Christian Bible, it says, do all things without grumbling. Do we, do we look like that? Think about this. Look at the next verse in that same passage. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do you see how this is connected? What was the beatitude just before this? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent. Who are blameless and innocent people? Those who are pure in heart. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who desire God's way to be, to be, to be paramount in the world. Do you see how that's connected with the idea right before that? Don't be a grumbler. See, if you're, if, if you're one whose heart is pure for the Lord, you're gonna be a peacemaker. If you're a peacemaker, you're not gonna be a grumbler. And if you're not a grumbler, then you're gonna be one who's blameless and innocent without blemish in the midst of the world that's watching you. Can I ask you a question? Or can I just make a statement? If we really did this, if we really did do all things without grumbling and disputing, then we would really do the, the result of that. We would be lights in the world. How brightly would we shine if our churches were communities of people that never grumbled, 
communities of people that never disputed instead of a, a reputation in the world of being those that fight the most? Does that just break your heart? It's not, this isn't hard, difficult truth. It's hard to live, but it's really clear. We're called to be peacemakers. Why? Because that's what human flour- it's what's going to lead to human flourishing. And when we don't do it, it leads us in a bad direction. And so Jesus invites us to a better way. So first, don't make things worse. Second, seek to make things better. Actively pursue peace. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, scriptures say. We're to be those that are fighting for peace, which means we we need to seek solutions. We lessen tensions. We diffuse arguments. It probably means we need to talk less often and post less often and smile more often and encourage more often means we need to lean in different directions. So let me give you a couple of just ways to process kind of how you're doing as a peacemaker in the world and maybe how you can diffuse situations when you're in them, when you're in situations that require peace. Ask yourself three questions. How can I best bring glory to God in this situation? When you're in the middle of any situation, you start to feel that tension or you start to see that twisting on someone's face or you begin to feel that, uh, that tone of voice change, stop and just ask yourself, how can I most bring glory to God in this situation? And then go to the next question. How can I best display the peace of God in this moment? In this second, right now, how can I best display and demonstrate the peace of God to this individual? And then thirdly, how can I best view this relationship in light of the gospel? See, how does the good news of Jesus inform how I'm to view this person and interact with this person right now? In any given circumstance, we need to stop and think about what's at stake. What are, what are the implications of this? Because it's easy to fly off the handle and I, I do it too. But it's helpful to stop and say, what does this say about, to someone about me? What does it say to someone about my Lord? What is this going to have effect on my group or my my family or my church or the reputation of Christ in my world if I'm called to shine as a light in the midst of a crooked generation? How is it I can put Christ on display most? You know, one of the names of Jesus is Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2 says, Christ himself is our peace. Where do you find peace? You run to Jesus. You trust him. What's the promise that follows from this, this challenge? It says they will be called sons of God. It's sons of God's not children of God in their culture and in that context. To be a, a son or a daughter of God was not just to be one of his children, but it's one that he owns and says, this is like one of mine. The, the picture there is of a parent at a sporting event looking through a chain link fence or sitting down looking down from the stand saying, that's my boy, that's my girl. And when we operate as peacemakers, it says is that God looks down and he says, hey, that's one of mine. That's one that belongs to me. That's, that's my little girl. That's my boy. And that's the image that we're meant to have here. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the same promise as the very first beatitude. So it brackets these. And so the first beatitude and the last one, blessed are the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is this is the most important thing is that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. That's why he gets to the end of Revelation. He says, make sure that your name's written in the book of life. This is the most critical thing is that you're gonna be in the kingdom now and forever. And so he starts with that and make sure that that's where he ends as well. 
It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. While all the other Beatitudes, as you kind of look through the list, are directly direct descriptors of kind of who we are, this one's a little bit indirect, but it describes what happens to us if we live out all the others. If we really look like Christ and demonstrate that in the world, then we're going to experience this. And so it's kind of a little more of an indirect thing. And what he's saying is no matter how much we want to live at peace in the world, some people are going to refuse to get along. And some people are even going to fight against what we're doing and the way we're trying to live. I find just in my experience, there's two extremes on this one. Uh, one extreme is that, that people have a martyr complex and they always think they're persecuted. And so no matter what happens, if, if someone disagrees with them, they're like, persecution. And if someone just doesn't give them their personal preference, they're like, we're all being martyred. And I, and I was in Scotland not long ago and I saw like initials on the ground where a guy was drug out of a building and killed in the street for his faith. And they walk around those initials because they want to honor the person who died there for their faith. Um, that's, that's martyrdom. Like someone not agreeing with you or your politics or your views or your opinions on something or where you want to eat or uh, what time you're able to meet or is one of the, that's not martyrdom. It's just not. So this extreme, sometimes some of us in the church have this danger of just feeling like everything's persecution. And we've got kind of a, an issue with that, I think, in our day. Now, the other extreme is we think, well, nothing's persecution except for, the, you know, missionaries that get burned at the stake in a third world country. And what Jesus is saying is something that's neither one of those two things. Um, he's saying that um, persecution is something we're all going to experience. And in fact, oddly, persecution is something that he considers part of the blessed life, part of the life of flourishing. That if we're truly flourishing, if we're truly demonstrating the, the virtues that he's laid out in front of us to this point, we are going to experience this kind of, um, this kind of criticism. Now, here's what we have to point out in this verse. There's a, there's a key qualifier here. Persecuted for what? It, it doesn't say, those who, blessed are those who are persecuted for being unreasonable. It, it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being overbearing in politics. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are, are, are persecuted for being rude or being inflexible. It's not, it's not those who are rewarded because they suffer for being insufferable, insufferable. It's blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus is gonna go on in verse 12 and he's gonna say, blessed are those who are, who, who are persecuted for my name's sake because of their association with me. This in verse 10, he starts off, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Verse 12, he's gonna go around and he's gonna get personal and says, blessed are you when you are persecuted. So it's not just general, but we all experience this. This is a part of the normal Christian life that just as we're called to be pure in heart, just as we're called to, to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness, just as we're called to be meek, just as we're called to, be, uh, to, to mourn our sin and our brokenness, we're also called to live in such a way that, that is so different that the world sometimes is gonna push back against us. And that's where Jesus kind of is pointing us with this, with this verse. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. It's a normal part of following Jesus. Um, and for the sake of time, we're gonna have to come back to that another time and look at it a little more. Let me just ask you this. How do we apply this passage to our lives? What is it that, that we are to do with this? Um, do you remember when you were young and new in the faith and you just took the Bible literally for what it means? Like you read a verse and you're like, oh, I guess I have to do that. 
at a verse and go, oh, I guess God's like that. And then you get smarter and you start trying to explain some of it away. Uh, what if we went back and we came to the words of Jesus and said, Jesus, would you teach me what, that, what you mean? And we trusted it. He says, if we build our lives upon it, we will stand. If we build our lives on anything less, it'll crumble and we'll fall. And it won't last. I think there's an invitation for us to trust what it is that Jesus says and that this is the way that we really will flourish as people in his world and his kingdom. But it's not easy. The process of discipleship is this tug of war between the old man and the new man this battle that goes on in each of our hearts, this claiming of territory and letting the Holy Spirit do work to take all the junk out of our hearts and clear away the weeds and, and clear away the, 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 the bad stuff and begin to plant new stuff so that it grows and flourishes and takes over our hearts. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into this. I love how Jen Wilkins says this. She says, sanctification rarely looks like an immediate ceasing of a particular sin it more often looks like an increase in the distance between repeated sins and a decrease in the distance between committing them and confessing them. God is so patient with his children. Friends, I know you don't have it together. I don't either. This is an invitation to just keep growing, to take a next step. It doesn't mean that you're sinless, but it does mean that you want to sin less, that you want more of the Lord, that you want more of his kingdom and that you want to shine like a world so that they get to see what your God is like. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we ask that you would be at work in each of our hearts, um, that we'd recognize it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Father, would we live more to him than we do to self? And Father, as, as your son Jesus taught us, Father, would we lay down things of self and learn to take up a new way that we might learn to be in the world the way you desire for us, that we might flourish. Father, for our good and for the glory of your name, we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.